Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host, Cherie Harder. This month, we begin a special series on our podcast called Discovery and Doxology, Conversations on Faith and Science. In partnership with the Templeton Religion Trust, BioLogos, and Church of the Advent, we're releasing four conversations between scientists, philosophers, and theologians to help us explore the relationship between science and faith. It's our aim to introduce you to some of the brightest scientific and theological lights of our own generation and to help you think wisely and well. The conversations have been pre-recorded and edited for clarity and length, but you can find each of the full recordings on our website at ttf.org. With that, here's today's conversation. Certainly, one of the big questions of life is the proper relationship between the claims of science and those of faith as they go to the very heart of how we discover and discern what is true and live wisely within reality. We're at a time where science and faith are widely believed to be in conflict. The discipline of science is sometimes conflated with a reductionist materialism that asserts or even assumes that only empirical knowledge is reliable and denigrates or dismisses ways of understanding what is real beyond the merely quantitative. At the same time, there are some people of faith who are show apprehension that scientific findings might be undermining of spiritual truth or Christian orthodoxy, and that the questions that those scientific findings raise are more likely to result in doubt rather than discovery, or the diminishment of moral laws with technological imperatives. So how should we think about science, faith, and the pursuit of truth. Joining us today are two incredibly renowned scholars, really among the world's experts from very different disciplines who have dedicated much of their professional lives to grappling with just that question. Elaine Eklund is an author, scholar, professor of sociology, and the director of religion and public life at Rice University, where her research focuses on how individuals bring change to both religious and scientific institutions. She has authored more than 70 peer-reviewed scholarly journals, as well as several books, including Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think, Korean American Evangelicals, New Modes for Civic Life, Varieties of Atheism in Science, Religion Versus Science, Secularity and Science, perceived a theme, and Why Science and Faith Need Each Other, which we've invited her to discuss today. Joining Elaine is Ted Davis, who is the Professor Emeritus of the History of Science at Messiah University and a fellow of the International Society for Science and Religion. Ted has published numerous articles on religion and science in a variety of academic journals and publications, such as The Scientific Revolution and Modern America, as well as serving as the editor for the works of Robert Boyle and Boyle's Treatise of God and the Mechanical Philosophy. He also serves as a frequent speaker on the relationship between science and faith, as well as an exhibit advisor to both the Natural Museum of American History and the Museum of the Bible. Elaine and Ted, welcome. We're really glad to see you here. Uh, thanks so much, Sheree. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you indeed. You bet. So let's just sort of start off at the very beginning, which is both of you are from different disciplines, but you have chosen a rather unusual field, the relationship of science and faith, for, for much of your scholarly work. Why this field? How did you get interested in this topic? And Elaine, maybe we can start with you. 
there's sort of the um, scholarly answer to that question. Um, I I think there are many interesting uh, questions at the interface of science and religion. And for my own field of sociology, how scientific groups and religious groups interact with one another, I think is one of the most pressing questions really of our day at the intersection of institutions and identities and beliefs, the kind of things that sociologists study. The more personal and perhaps more accurate answer is I was raised in a faith community where um, science was not particularly affirmed. And so this was a struggle, a part of my early life. And as a social scientist, we study people and sometimes our work is quite autobiographical. And I would say that's the case for me in part. So that kind of background juxtaposed with the fact that I've always loved science. I was a kid who entered every science fair and walked in the woods. I was raised in a farming community and and really have loved the natural world. I always tell people I love science so much. I married a scientist. So many years after those um, first uh, walks in the woods, I met my husband, who's a particle physicist at Cornell University. And so have just continued um, through his work, my own love of science. And as a person of faith, have been always puzzled by the connections between faith and science and why under certain conditions, these communities really don't get along and the kinds of social consequences, very real consequences in, there are when those communities don't interact well together. Yeah. What about you, Ted? My interest in science and faith developed when I was teaching science and mathematics at a Christian high school in Philadelphia. Uh, then it was only then that I decided to go to graduate school to see how I might pursue that more fully. I guess the most influential encounters I had before making those decisions came through membership in the American Scientific Affiliation, which is, uh, to my knowledge, the oldest organization for Christians in the sciences in North America. Their website is asa3.org for anyone who wants to explore that. If you're, in, if you're a Christian and you're interested in the sciences and these kinds of issues, you really need to, to, to come be part of that group. And then also from reading Bernard Ram's influential book, The Christian View of Science and Scripture, that was published in 1954. In my view, the most important post-war book by an evangelical about science. And this is, these are the things that, that got me more keenly interested in science and Christianity. Uh, I, in those days, there wasn't any obvious route to take to learn more about these things. There were no graduate programs, for example, in theology and science as there are today, or even in religion and science as there are today. I chose the academic field of the history of science because I had always been interested in that as well. And it was the historians of science already were writing about science and faith quite a bit in those days. Yeah. So as we start our conversation, it's always good to get a sense of exactly kind of what we're talking about. And, you know, often scientific inquiry and theological scholarship are, are assumed to be in some kind of conflict and that theology, religion, and science, you know, they do use different methods for determining or declaring what is true. Um, others have thought that kind of science and faith essentially ask different questions, contribute different fields of knowledge. There's very little overlap. So I'd love to ask you both how you define and differentiate between the realms of science and faith. And Elaine, maybe we can start with you again. 
that's the kind of thing if I were teaching a class and a student um, asked me that question, you know, of which about many books have been written, right? And, you know, I'm going to give you a 30 second answer. So got to take what I'm saying is just the tip of the faith. iceberg. Like yeah. Um, so I am most interested as a sociologist. Um, a sociologist take um, for granted the axiom that people wind up in groups. That and that our groupness, and I think this is a, a very spiritual assessment as well, that we are created inherently to be relational people. And we are most comfortable as people and flourish best when we are in community. So then that makes sense to me as a scholar as well, that we have at our core some kind of need to be in groups. So when I think about science and faith, I think about the group of people and the set of institutions that describe science and um, scientists and the set of people and groups and denominations and traditions that describe religion and religious people. Scientists in terms of truth claims and propositions are more most concerned with empirical, empirically verifiable observations of the natural and biological worlds. Religious people are most concerned with existential and practical questions of meaning and purpose and the kind of traditions that uphold the answers to those questions. But those definitions kind of untie very quickly when you get down on the ground and into these communities um, called scientists and religious people or Christians, maybe for our purposes of this conversation and what they're actually doing in their everyday practices and how they relate to one another. And I, I love being in this conversation with Ted, whose work I respect very much, because I think our work is very complementary in that way. I'm most interested in contemporary people and what they're doing and the kinds of methods that social scientists and sociologists have to study those group dynamics. And Ted's work has been more focused on the historical record, but we have, so, in some sense, uh, some complementary tools that we use. Yeah, great. Ted, I'm going to ladle an extra question on top of that for you. Maybe you can kind of tackle both of them, which, you know, as a historian of science, uh, just to kind of pull in the, the widely held assumption that science and faith are in conflict. You know, so many of us remember from our time in school, the story of Galileo kind of, you know, bravely taking the stand for what turned out to be true. But you've made the point before that it didn't necessarily always used to be that way, uh, that actually during the, the very early years of, of Christianity, the patristic era, there was the view that theology was the queen of the sciences uh, and philosophy was her, was her handmaiden. So I'd love to kind of hear from you kind of where this narrative about science and faith being in conflict comes from, you know, how new a mode of thought this is. Well, that is indeed a, a different question than, than mm -hmm. the one you asked, Elaine. Do you want me to attempt to say anything about the one you asked, Elaine, or do you want me to just go with this? If you would like to, of course. <laughs> well, I would give a sociological answer as well, uh, the way Elaine did. I mean, I would say science is what scientists do, mm -hmm. and by and large, scientists seek natural explanations for natural phenomena. I'll just leave it at that. And that religion gives people certain things. Religion gives people a, an origin story, a set of ultimate values, hope for the future, these types of things. Scientism can do that for people. Richard Dawkins does that, even though he doesn't think he's religious. He is. He just has, he just has a religion of, of, of anti-theism. But that's the kind of thing that religion does for people. So they do somewhat different things. Any points of connection they might have, in my view, are at the metaphysical level. And if you want to talk further about that later, we could. 
but that takes us astray from your question. As to the conflict business, well, you're right that the patristics, the so-called church fathers, the people who were the Christian leaders in the first few centuries of the church, had a view of science that was known as the handmaiden model that they actually derived, I think, from Philo Judaeus, a contemporary of Jesus, who was a great Jewish philosopher. And the, the notion that is a, the net, what we call science today, it, it serves the interests of theology or should serve the interests of theology. And the theology is the queen of all learning, because sciences in those days just meant learning broadly, it didn't mean narrowly natural science. So philosophy is the, and science are the handmaidens uh, to theology. Now, interestingly, at the time they, they began to use that metaphor, there were no Christian scientists at all anywhere in the world as far as I know. I think the first significant Christian scientist, at least the first person of note to do this, was John Philoponus around 500 AD. So right down through the period of Augustine, there's not, there aren't any Christian scientists. You know, the, the uh, science existed. It, it had something like, uh, fairly close uh, to, to modern science in some ways, was already existing in Greece for several centuries at that point. But Christians didn't do that. Uh, Christians didn't begin doing that in large numbers until the high Middle Ages and the, the arrival of the creation, really, of, of medieval universities, an institution unique in the world's history to Christian Europe in the high Middle Ages, but from which all, you know, almost all universities in the world today, in Christian and non-Christian contexts, are descended. But that's, that's when Christians begin doing science in large numbers, is in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, and ever, ever since. Um, that handmaiden view is the dominant view right down through the time of Galileo. But Galileo questions whether the traditional conception of it is really any good. As he says, science may be the queen in that she excels all the other science. Theology may be the queen, excuse me. Theology may be the queen because she excels all the other sciences in dignity. And, and because her knowledge is arrived at in a special way, namely revelation. But he doesn't concede that science is the queen in the sense of being able to lord it over uh, the practitioners of the individual sciences like mathematics or astronomy or, or medicine. He even says at one point that, that even a learned a, a cleric, a priest who knows something about science would never say that, that the Bible tells us more about astronomy than Ptolemy or that the Bible tells us more about medicine than Galen or that it tells us more about geometry than Euclid. So, so Galileo says, you know, look, there's these traditional secular authorities on science, and they're still the best, the best place to go if you want to learn about these things. It's not going to be the Bible, because that's not what its purpose is. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, Elaine, you've argued before that part of the reason for the perception between uh, of conflict between science and faith may have as much to do with the conflict between faith and scientific communities as opposed to the actual substance of claims uh, or discoveries. And you've, you've noted that Christians are actually more likely than those from other religions to be suspicious of the scientific community and, and to perceive tensions between uh, faith and science. And so I'd love for you to kind of say a little bit more about this, both the, the nature of the distrust and how it plays out in terms of popular understandings of, of the conflict you know, and between discovery and faithful orthodoxy? That's a fantastic question. So 
historians, philosophers, um, theologians who've studied the faith science interaction will almost universally tell us that there doesn't have to be a conflict between faith and science. And I think that's good to assert for this group. I could give you lots of references to back up what I just said. But where the sociologist comes in is to say, but but there still is, you know, people are still not getting along well in these two communities. And so then I start asking, you know, what is at the nature of, of that kind of what I would think of as relational or community conflict under certain conditions. And Cherie, you, you really answered part of the question aptly. There is an inherent mistrust. So the most um, recent research pre-COVID shows that many, in particular in evangelical Christian communities and some mainline Protestant and Catholic communities as well, think that scientists do not have as much of a moral compass as they might like. So there is a sense where scientists are people that you might not necessarily be able to trust um, that they're not they're not moral persons, that they also are very anti-religion, that evangelicals, Catholics, mainline Protestants, some conservative Jews, some Muslims in the United States think that scientists pretty universally are atheists of the type that Ted mentioned of a kind of Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or others. These folks have written a lot of popular works. And so then that makes it seem like there is an outsized impact of this group of scientists. There are many more of them because they're such prolific writers than they, than they really are. And I think when you start talking about the relationship between the scientific and the faith community as being one of mistrust, that becomes a very interesting finding because then we want to ask if is those, those of us on this call who are very concerned about building good relationships um, for the common good so that we can see both individuals flourish, but also communities really flourish and work together around common interests, then those of us who are concerned about those larger societal goals start asking, uh, how can we, how can we turn mistrust into trust? And that's a different kind of question than how can we prove intellectually or propositionally or philosophically or theologically that the set of things called religion and the set of things called science don't have to be in conflict. So my work is more concerned with that building relational trust kind of piece of it than showing propositionally that these things can connect. Does that make sense? That kind of distinction is, is the kind of piece, piece I think of the conversation. Yeah, oh, that's fascinating. I mean, so many kind of follow-ups on that. I would love to hear you more about how you build that kind of trust mm. and also ask about fear and anger. And mm. you know, often at the root of distrust is a sense of fear and anger. It's probably not coincidental that fear and anger is also the big driver of of conspiracy thinking. You know, and we've certainly had lots of conspiracy thinking going on. Part of the reason this pops to mind is one of our our speakers from a year ago talking about Christians and conspiracy pinpointed fear kind of at the at the basis of, of that. And so I would love to talk to you about sort of how both you kind of build that trust, but also there are people perhaps that we, one is right uh, to be skeptical about. Mm -hmm. And so how you choose wisely who you trust in that role. Yeah. So fear 
anger and fear and anger, we know from, from good social psychological work are often very connected that we become angry at or angry about the things we are afraid of, if that makes sense. I tell a story in my book, Why Science and Faith Need Each Other, about my editor said, try to think of the time when you were most afraid and to start the book out, because I know that sociologically, but she said, try to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's really afraid in one of these communities and kind of embody what that feels like. And the time that I was most afraid, as I write about in the book, was when I lost my daughter, who was then four, and I didn't find her for a long time. And, you know, there was like a public safety protocol called in in our situation at her daycare. And I can never remember being as afraid in my whole life. And when we found her, what did I want to do? Punish her in the extreme way I could. I mean, I became really angry. And our our daycare director said very wisely, there's a fine line between fear and anger. And she said, just step back a minute. There, There is. And so to when someone shows up in our circle, whether we're in the science, whether our primary identity is in the faith circle, the science circle, and is angry at us, then I think a wise, a wise response is to try to ponder what is the person really afraid of? So it goes the opposite as well. When someone is angry, then to step back and say, what is the fear that's here? I think that's really important. The other, the other kind of emotion or relational response that's often, I think, connected in the science and faith um, community conversation is what I would call rejection. Both scientific and faith communities sometimes talk badly about the other. Does that make sense? So they say, I'll just be really colloquial, they sort of say smack about each other, you know, right? So so one of the, when I give trainings to scientists about how to connect well um, with students in their classrooms, for those who are university scientists, with students of faith who raise concerns about science, it's like, well, for one, just a really easy one, I don't care what you think, don't start off any classes or say publicly that you think religious people are stupid. Like, just don't stop doing that. You know, <laughs> like that, that doesn't help matters. And I, you know, also when I give talks to churches and which I love to do and other faith organizations that want to know how to interact well um, with scientists, I, I tell them, you know, don't assume scientists are out to like are these um, science fiction type characters who are out to blow up the world or that they're immoral sort of, you know, try to lay aside some of those assumptions um, that lead to fear. And then I think make the other group feel like you're rejecting them out of hand, that you're not even giving them a chance. Mm -hmm. Ted, how does this play out in, in your work? You are an exhibit advisor, both to the Smithsonian Museum for Natural History and the Museum of the Bible. I'm sure you have seen real life examples of, you know, trying to build uh, that trust among perhaps very differently minded players. How has that played out? Yeah, well, but the Smithsonian, by the way, it's the Museum of American History, not the, oh, not the natural history, different story. But uh, I think fear of science on the part of Christians has a number of sources, including the fact that in um, the last uh, 100 years, at least, I would say, in many cases, polarization among the American religious community has contributed to the fact that relatively few scientists, active working scientists, have been made to feel comfortable in many evangelical Christian churches, and in some other churches also. For example, I know an evolutionary biologist who tells me that when he and his wife went looking for a church in the New York area, 
when they found out he was an evolutionary biologist, a person immediately asked him, and why are you doing the devil's work? Mm. So this type of a response, which originates in the religious community, not in the scientific community, is it can, can be part of the problem. In America, the notion that the historical sciences, the ones dealing with the history of the earth and the life on it and the history of the universe, like cosmology, have been suspect in many conservative Protestant circles since since about 1800. Right after 1800, a, a, a very important American Presbyterian who later became the second professor of theology at Princeton Seminary, Samuel Miller, wrote a book called A Brief Retrospect of the 18th Century, in, in which he castigated that as the century of infidel science, is how he put it, and, and in which scientists deliberately tried to undermine the truth of the Bible. He was especially thinking of geologists who were starting to think the earth is more, far more than just a few thousand years old and, and that humanity may be the same. Virtually all scientists agree with that today, that, that the earth and, and humans are far older than a few thousand years. Many Christians today think that's infidelity, I mean, particularly Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis. That circle believes that if you think the earth is older than a few thousand years, you're on your way to atheism and that Jesus didn't die for your sins. They basically tell people this. So Christians have a role to play in this whole feeling about conflict. Some real legitimate science, at least what I consider real legitimate science is rejected as false science. That's the term that's used. Science falsely so-called. Terminology coming out of uh, Paul's letter to Timothy science falsely so-called. That terminology has been in use since Samuel Miller to describe certain aspects of science, where he at least felt his understanding of the Bible was undermined by certain scientific claims. So the church has a role in this as well. But in general, the historians who know things about the history of science and religion, virtually all historians of science think that the notion that science has always been and always will be in conflict with uh, Christian faith or other religion, but especially with Christian faith, don't believe that. They don't believe that historically it's true at all. It doesn't hold any water. There's so much of the history of science and religion that won't fit into that conceptual box that it's just rejected by historians today. It wasn't rejected by historians um, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and it wasn't rejected by historians in the 19th century either. In fact, it has its, its apex really comes in the in the late 19th and early 20th century and this feeling is almost universal among american scholars that that the rise of science has made traditional christian theology untenable but i say can i, can I jump in of uh, ted or is that okay Shri? i i think i i want to support what um ted is saying and add a little bit to it so in the contemporary world there's some recent research that shows that scientists um, think that religious people are all against them. So you're, you're sort of N of one, your evolutionary biologist that went to the church is, as I think, tapping into something that's a much broader phenomenon that my research shows that scientists think that religious people are all against them. 
and that religious people think that scientists are hostile to them. So imagine how you feel about a group if you think that that group is actually hostile to you and your way of way of being. And so I think that's really important that the animosity right now between these two groups is is really significant. And then there are folks that you know I would call kind of boundary pioneers who are um, persons of faith who are Christian specifically and who are very active scientists. We've held up. Francis Collins, our former National Institutes of Health director, quite a bit. But there are others, everyday scientists who are in faith communities who sometimes feel fearful of talking about their scientific work because they fear that what, you know, their their fellow persons in the pews will think of them. And so then I want to encourage those scientists who are out there to talk about your scientific work in your church, if you're part of a church community, that that can be a very powerful part of ministry to talk about that work. And then there are a lot of, the last thing I'll say is that their identities overlap and it's helpful to understand the underlying reasons um, people of faith might be afraid of or angry at scientists. So what our team is uncovering are the kind of underlying reasons that white evangelicals have for these issues and fear is very different than what largely black congregations um, feel about science and scientists is different than what largely Hispanic, it's different than what uh, multiracial and ethnic, and that's just talking about race and ethnicity we find also that men and women view the relationship between faith and science and have an underlying mistrust in science under certain conditions that's quite different than the reasons that men have have those um, same kinds of concerns, Christian men. So, so just to think about like all of the ways in which we're complicated as human beings and how all of those ways then might feed into viewing this particular relationship between science and faith. That's fascinating. There's so much more I'd like to ask you. And we're going to turn to questions from our audience in just a second. But before we do, I do want to simply ask you about the title of your book, Elaine, which is Why Science and Faith Need Each Other. And just to throw that back to you, why do science and faith need each other? Well, I think that they actually have more in common than they think. For that particular um, book, I set out in my research to try to look at the commonalities between the scientific and faith community. And they do share things like a love of beauty and awe in the natural world and a concern for justice of using science and medicine for the good and flourishing of humanity. And so the kind of focusing on those common values or shared values, I then think can cut down on that kind of mistrust. They need each other in order to support the flourishing of our world is is the bottom line. And if we think, you know, as I do, that they're completely, that the idea that they're incompatible is a myth, there are all kinds of possibilities of the ways in which these two communities can really work together productively. And in our pandemic times, we can just see the real dysfunction and the reasons for these communities to work together well. Yeah, very true. Ted, anything to add? In in my work as a historian of science, I, I, I would say that really specializing in the history of science and religion, I think Christian faith often complements with an E, complements the picture of the world coming from the sciences, helping us to achieve a deeper understanding of both the way the world is 
and how we should go about understanding it while providing a more powerful motive for investigating nature. I would say also the Christian doctrine of creation, when, when we properly understand it, helps us to understand more of reality than science alone is able to study, including the very possibility of why science is possible itself as a form of knowledge about nature. Einstein once asked one of his very famous probing questions or, or comments was that he said the most incomprehensible thing about the world is that it is comprehensible. Mm. Um, you know, I, th I think he was absolutely right about that. He was kind of assuming both the regularity of the world as we find it, and also the fact that the astonishing fact for him that our minds as humans can delve deeply into that world and produce a coherent picture of reality. Both of those things, the regularity in the world and our ability to probe it, happen to match perfectly the biblical notion of creation. Mm. That's great. So we're going to turn to questions from our viewers, and there have been quite a few of them that have come in. I, there's no way we're going to get through all or even half of these, but we'll try to do as much as we can. Uh, a question from Peter Lemaire, and Ted, I might toss this one to you. Is the conflict between science and religion really between scientism as a pseudo-religion and true religion? Mm. To a significant degree in the contemporary context, I would say yes. Uh, let me illustrate that with a couple quotes. About 30 years ago, Richard Dawkins gave Christmas lectures at the Royal Institution in London, and he asks himself rhetorically, he says, he says, what is the meaning of life? And, and then he says, here's his answer, 17 words. If science has nothing to say, he said, it's certain that no other discipline can say anything at all. That, that is scientism, pure and simple, that if we can't draw a conclusion from science, the question has no meaning, really no meaning. This is an ultimate logical positivism answer for those who know anything about that, under which metaphysics gets thrown under the bus, mm -hmm. even though that position itself is metaphysical. <laughs> but, but then uh, let me contrast that with another scientist who didn't believe in God, another biologist who didn't believe in God, even a far more important biologist than Dawkins. That was uh, Nobel laureate Peter Medawar. Medawar wrote a wonderful book on the limits of science, and here's how he put it. The existence of a limit to science is made clear by its inability to answer childlike questions having to do with first and last things. Questions such as how did everything begin? What are we all here for? What is the point of living? It is not to science, therefore, but to metaphysics, imaginative literature, or religion that we must turn for answers to questions having to do with first and last things. So Medawar, an atheist like Dawkins, a biologist like Dawkins, totally different view of, mm -hmm. of whether science refutes religion. Medawar clearly thinks it can't. Dawkins mm -hmm. thinks it does. So our next question comes from an anonymous viewer and it's directed towards you, Elaine. It says, Elaine mentioned that it's important for communities to work together to achieve the common good. What are some practical ways that we can build trust in our communities in order to work towards the common good? I think putting different types of people together around common questions. I mean, actually, you're, what you're doing right here, I, this is not a paid endorsement of the Trinity Forum, but I think these kinds of things are really important where we get different groups of people coming together. So people with very different social locations talking about common things. There are very few places in our society where we get the opportunity to do that. 
especially with a real kind of push in the in, in the pandemic, it's only gotten worse where we are getting social connection through social media often and online connection where we have the ability to really narrow the scope of our social networks to those who agree with us. And that can be particularly dangerous in a society which is already polarized because we don't get the opportunity to be challenged and to hear different views and to interact with different kinds of people. So one, I think getting together with folks that are different from you around common purposes. And in the science and faith holes idea, I think we need to try to put people who have one identity that's in common with people who have that identity, but a second identity that's not in common. So it's very important for Christian churches to help Christians meet scientists who are also Christians. So they have that that common Christian foundation, but then they have that professional identity that's not in common. The person's part of group A of the Christians will then be, and research backs this up, will be more likely to accept what the scientist who is also a Christian has to say. That's great. Uh, Ted, I wanna direct the next question to you. And this question comes from Jerry McCoy. And Jerry asks, scripture indicates that God is actively involved in the physical realm. Science has been quite successful in explaining the physical realm without appealing to God. Where do you see God involved in the physical realm without appealing to, quote, God of the gaps? Well, that's a long conversation. It depends what we mean by a God of the gaps, partly. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the history of that, although it would be irrelevant. It's not time to do that. If we mean Let's come back to what Peter Medawar said, that, that, that there, are, there are basically, he's saying, that these are these meaningful questions about, about the world and about our existence that science just can't address. Now, so does that, is that a gap? Are there, is, is there a truth that science can't deliver and that it's actually still potentially a truth? So there are ways of learning about things that science just can't enter into. So if we talk about that as a gap, well, then we have a problem because I think that indeed religion and other, other areas of human activity can indeed address questions about meaning and value and purpose that science is incapable by its own methods of addressing. So is that a gap? I don't think so. I think the, the classical notion of a God of the gap is finding something that nature cannot explain and therefore we invoke God. Well, Suppose, suppose science can't explain something in principle. It's not capable of answering that kind of a question. Does that, does that make a gap? I, I don't think so. But if you think so, well, then I can't answer your question. I can't answer your question about how religion and science, I mean, how religion can say things without a gap. Because, because the kinds of answers religion gives are different from the kinds of answers that science gives. They're just inherently different. Science doesn't have the capability to do these things for us. And an example I would give is the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence, in my view, is flatly contradicted by modern genetics. I mean, genetics does not support the claim that all humans are created equal. And ignore the created part, which for many scientists would be a problem, but just the part about human equality. Science can't deliver human equality to us. It just can't do that. In fact, the message is that our genomes are all different. They have a lot in common, but every person's genome is different. There wouldn't be a whole idea of genetic, genetically directed medicine. So some people have more ability to do some things than others. You can't do this, you can do that. I was never gonna be able to be the center fielder of, of the New York Yankees or the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra. I didn't have that. 
even though I'd like to, I would have liked to have done either of those two things. I'm not equal with the people who can in terms of those abilities. I'm just not. And humans are created equal if we are in some other sense that science doesn't touch on. So that, that's, that's the big point I'm trying to give here. Yeah. Um, that's great. Elaine and Ted, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. As promised, I wanted to give the last word to Ted and Elaine. Ted. Okay, well, let me go to an unusual source for a quotation. Thomas Henry Huxley, the known as Darwin's bulldog, the person who coined the word agnostic to describe his own religious position. Mm -hmm. He wrote this at one point. He said, science seems to me to teach in the highest and strongest manner the great truth which is embodied in the Christian conception of entire surrender to the will of God. Sit down before fact as a little child. Be prepared to give up every preconceived notion. Follow humbly wherever and to whatever abysses nature leads, or you shall learn nothing. Thanks, Ted. Elaine. That was beautiful, Ted. My last thought is that I used to think of the misunderstandings that scientific and faith communities um, have about one another as mildly annoying. But in these uh, pandemic times, in times of great civil unrest, both locally and globally, these misunderstandings have now become a real matter of, of life and death, and our rectifying of them is really, I think, a key part of building up our flourishing democracy. So I just want to encourage the scientists who are persons of faith who are on the call. I think you have a really key part to play here as a type of bridge builder and boundary pioneer. And so I hope you'll, you'll be encouraged and you'll take that role seriously. Thank you, Elaine. And thank you, Ted. We hope you enjoy this discovery and doxology series and that it helps to inspire great conversations for you too.